Today we are celebrating a, the, the fourth and final week of the Advent season, and uh, we've been going through a series called A Time for Hope, looking into Old Testament prophecies, things that pointed forward to the hope of Israel, which, uh, as we know, uh, ultimately is God sending Jesus uh, to come to earth as Emmanuel. And today we're going to be looking specifically at uh, chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Isaiah 9. Uh, if you don't, again, I say it every week, but I just want to let people know there are Bibles back there. You can have one of those to keep. Uh, if you're looking on your phone, I read from the New International Version, uh, the NIV for short, so you can find that probably within the list of all the different uh, versions of, of the scriptures that are there. You can look under the NIV uh, uh, so you can read along so it sounds like what I'm reading when I read it. Um, the, the, this passage today from Isaiah 9 is kind of a famous Christmas time passage. Uh, that's, it's not very veiled in its prophetic nature and, 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 and how it's pointing forward clearly to the coming of the Messiah, which as we know, be, you know is Jesus. And what I want to do is look a little bit deeper into how, as much as this passage was applied to Judah and in a broader sense to the people of Israel, the children of God, it also applies to us and how we kind of are Judah and Israel as well. And so at this point in the history of the people of God, when Isaiah is writing this, um, you know that the, the kingdom has been divided into the, the kingdom that God had started called the nation of Israel. It's split in two and Israel was to the north and Judah, the people of Judah were to the south and they had the temple and they had the, 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 the capital city of Jerusalem. And this is where all the, like the, the major religious activity happens in Judah, but it's a split divided kingdom with Israel having already been carted off by a foreign empire called Assyria. And Judah, at this point, the southern kingdom, is surrounded by Assyria. And Assyria is starting to close in on them and and eventually will carry them off into exile as well. And Isaiah, the prophet, his ministry at this point to the children of God is is to warn them that, that God is going to allow them to be taken into exile because of their idolatry, because of their worship of these created gods that they had made out of wood and stone and all these things, and, and also because of their empty religious behavior, all these ritualistic things they were doing. And so they would be able to check the box that said, God, I've done my God things, but then the rest of the week they couldn't have cared anyone, anything else about the people around them, about doing justice for their neighbors, loving their, their neighbors the way God had commanded them to. And, and so God says, I'm going to remove my protection on you. The, the blessing that I've put on you, I'm going to remove that, and you're going to be carted off into exile. And so what we see in the, in the midst of the early chapters of Isaiah is as the stress builds for the people of Judah, as these prophetic warnings are coming, as Assyria is starting to lay siege to them, Isaiah warns them that they're going to start trying to find, even more so, they're going to try to find their, their protection and, and their identity and guidance from people and things other than God. He says, you're going to do this. He says that they're going to start to look to their wealth to protect them and to keep them safe. And as things start to, to crumble and, and men are, specifically men are dying or being sent off to protect the land, the text says that, that people started looking to, to other people to lead them. They're looking to like ill-qualified young men to lead them, uh, saying, you know what, maybe, maybe you can be king. It says at one point, you've got a cloak, you be king. Like, and the guy's like, what, how can I be king? It's this, so it's this idea that they're looking everywhere for ill-advised leaders it says that, that women started trying to draw more and more attention to themselves to try to get a hold of any guy they could to be a husband to them and to care for them. 
uh, because there weren't enough good men around to be married because they were all fighting or had died. And it starts really being a culture that, that is looking for good enough. Like, this husband's good enough, this leader is good enough, whatever we can do to have somebody take care of us other than God. That's where they're looking everywhere else for something good enough other than to God. And God says, well, I'm going to allow you to be carted off into exile because of this behavior. I'm going to remove this this blessing of provision, of protection, and identity. But to me, one of the things that's most telling about the people of God's behavior at this point, where they're trying to find their identity and their, and their guidance, was they start looking to, to other religions, even to other types of spiritual things. And there's a verse in Isaiah eight nineteen where it says that Isaiah tells them, when men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people instead inquire of their God? He says, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? So he calls them mediums and spiritists. You know, this is like your palm readers, tarot card, whatever you want to say. Like, I don't know, talk shows. Like other places where you're going to get these spiritual, this spiritual guidance, this spiritual wisdom. He says, they're looking everywhere. And Isaiah says, why are you looking to the dead on behalf of the living? This doesn't make any sense. He says, they're just as dead as you. Why would you go to them for wisdom? Why in the world are you looking to them for answers? And then he goes on in the next verse in, in Isaiah eight twenty. in response to that, he says to the law, go to the law, go to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, meaning if these spiritists aren't speaking according to the law and the testimony, they have no light of dawn, this, this morning light in them. When Isaiah says, look to the law and look to the testimony. He's, he's actually talking about look to the law of Moses, to the Torah, to, the, to the, you know, the commands that Moses had given to the people. When he says go to the testimony, he's saying, look to what the past prophets have said. Go to them for your wisdom. And he's saying if you're not looking, if you're looking to people who are, aren't in turn pointing you to God, who aren't in turn, you know, in turn pointing you to God's provision for you, he says you're going to end up in the dark. You're going to end up in gloom. You're going to end up in distress because those people that you're looking to are just as dead as you. He says, don't, don't look to them. And so he says that when they do this, when they go to these dead mediums and spiritists that rather than the Torah and the prophets that, that point to the covenant God, they end up distressed. They end up hungry, he says. They end up famished. They end up looking everywhere. And he says they end up becoming even angry at God. And he's saying they go to look for these other answers from other people to other spiritual things. And when it doesn't work out, they end up getting mad at God. And they're like, well, this is God's fault. And Isaiah is saying, no, 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 no. Look to the covenant God for your protection, for your identity, for your purpose, for your provision. When we do that, we really find it. And so I just want to sidebar item in the midst of this. This is why something that's very important to me as a pastor and to us as a church family and why we say this, we do this is that we want to gospel one another because we know that as humans we often want to look anywhere for answers and and what we say our call as a church family is is to gospel one another and say don't look to dead things on behalf of the living we say look to the gospel look to god so one of our calls is to continually be in each other's lives saying who does god say you are who does god say he is towards you? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel for you in this situation? Always trying to point to the living to guide the living rather than to the dead. And so I, we really believe that, that, that when we help one another believe the gospel, 
that our circumstances might not change, but it changes our outlook. It changes our understanding of who we are and the, and the capabilities of God and helps us have hope. It helps us make wiser decisions and helps us be filled with the love of God and the light and the guidance of God and, and on and on. So, again, we try to gospel one another rather than looking everywhere else for spiritual type answers. So Isaiah tells them, he says, you're going to keep doing this. You're going to keep looking to other things for your answers. You're going to try to find your hope anywhere else and you're going to end up walking in darkness. He says, you will walk in fear and in gloom, and you're going to keep looking for your identity and your protection elsewhere, and you're not going to find it. And it's into that place of despair that Isaiah tells the people that God is going to bring them hope. That despite everywhere else they've been looking, he says, God is going to send you hope. That God's going to send a king who brings life and light and joy and life and freedom and wise leadership that leads to more peace and more justice on the earth. And I don't about you, but I feel like our lives need that kind of king. That kind of leader who will lead us into those places, into more and more peace, more and more justice, more and more joy, more and more freedom from oppression. I want to read uh, this passage in Isaiah 9 with you. Uh, if you have it, you can turn there and look at this. You don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it, but I just want you to read along with me. So he goes through in chapter 8, laying out all this gloom that they're going to be walking in, this darkness, in this despair. And then chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of uh, Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. That is the Jordan River. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle... And every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In this brief passage from Isaiah, there's the whole bunch of this comparing and contrasting going on. And really, it's kind of how he writes through all of his prophecies, saying, You could have this, you could have this, you could have this, or you could have this. And so, what I want to point out, though, is a couple of things in this passage. Right out of the gate, he says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, despite everything you've been going through, despite the fact that you've been looking elsewhere for your answers, despite the fact that when you don't find answers, you start blaming God, nevertheless, God is going to bring your gloom to an end. Friends, this is the gospel. This is, to me, this is the core of the gospel, that despite us looking everywhere else for answers and godly input and spiritual things and wisdom and trying to find identity and purpose, despite looking anywhere but God, still into the midst of that, he says, I love you and I'm going to send you hope. That is our God. That is 
the gospel, that he is for us even when we are opposed to him and not looking for him. And then Isaiah mentions these two lands, Zebulon and Naphtali. And if, if you know this, you, know, you, you don't let me remind you, but I will, that, that Jacob had 12 sons. Two of them were these guys, Zebulon and Naphtali. And they end up becoming bigger and bigger families. They end up becoming full tribes in Israel. And God, when they move into the promised land, God takes the people of, of God and he divides them up in the land. And he takes these two tribes and he says, you're going to go to the north. And he gives them this, this good land that ends up being called Zebulon and Naphtali. And it's along the Jordan River. It's this fertile area. It was kind of the furthest, well, sort of the furthest northern point in the kingdom of Israel. But it also meant that because it was good fertile land, and because they were the furthest to the north, whenever they would be invaded, those lands would get invaded first. And those people would suffer the distress and the gloom of being occupied by, by enemies. And, but it was a good land, despite the fact that they would regularly be uh, oppressed by enemies that would come through their territory. But God says, dis- in, in light of all of that, the fact that you've been distressed and, and humbled in that area, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to honor this land and do something new in the future. And he says, these people of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is there. He says, these people of Galilee are linked to the coming of the Messiah. He says, it's there in that area that I'm going to send my hope, the Savior King of Israel. So then in verse 2 and 3, he starts to really ramp up the imagery of what the end of their gloom will look like, how this hope is going to come about. He says, it will be like walking in darkness and someone lighting, lighting a fire or a torch to, to guide the way. Now, I don't know if, like how many of you spend time in the woods or have been camping or hiking, that, that when it gets dark at night and you are removed from the lights of the city, like it's dark and it is a little bit intimidating and you hear things and you want to know what's going on around you. Survival experts will tell you one of the best things you can do is immediately get a, a fire started. It provides you know, light to see what you're doing. It gives warmth and it gives this, this sense of safety. And in a sense, it is safety to keep animals away. And he's saying it's a priority that you need to do this. But he says, this is what is going to happen, that God is going to send this light into your darkness that is going to bring warmth and safety and reveal to you the truth. And he goes on to say that there's going to be so much joy over the arrival of this light into the darkness, into their distress, that it'll be like a new harvest of food that you have worked for. Now, how many of you are active farmers? None, right? Like, okay, so this, you're like, oh, great, a harvest of food. That sounds nice. Think of it as like you, you worked hard all year and you get a big Christmas bonus, like, like that kind of of joy that you have applied yourself and now you get to see the fruit of your labor in a big way. And he's saying, now maybe you don't get Christmas bonuses, but imagine if you did, how joyful you would be uh, that you've worked all hard all year and you get this, this harvest, right? He's saying that's the kind of joy that it's going to feel like. He says it will be like the dividing of plunder. Now again, most of us aren't pillaging experts or pirates who go about like getting plunder and coming back and dividing it up. But do you remember that feeling like when you'd go out for Halloween and you come home, maybe you didn't get to celebrate Halloween, but if you did, when you come home with like that, that uh, pillowcase full of candy and you pour it out on the floor or on the table and you start dividing it up and you're putting the three musketeers over here and the Snickers over here and the bad candy from the mean people over there, and you're splitting it up with your siblings if you got along with them. Or like, it's that kind of joy, that kind of just excitement and happiness over this light that is going to break in, that's going to be a, a dawning on their darkness and on their distress, just full of joy. 
And he goes on in verses four and five to talk about why it will be so joyful. He says, this is why. You're gonna, this, this light that's going to dawn is going to bring freedom from their oppressors and it's going to start to mean the end of war, the end of, of fighting and bloody battle, that it's going to begin to cease. And, and he says that it will be in like the days of Midian's defeat. Now, if you want to read this, you can read this this week in Judges 6 to 8. Judges is an earlier book in the Bible. There was this, when the people of God first moved into the promised land under Joshua, they started to occupy the territory. And, and they started, again, like, like Israel does, we see over and over again, they start worshiping idols rather than trusting the covenant God. And God allows them to come under the oppression of these people called the Midianites. And the Midianites, for seven years, oppressed the people of God. And God raises up a judge or a leader, we'll call him, named Gideon. And he says, Gideon, you're going to be the one to set the people free. I'm going to, I'm going to use you to fight <clears throat> the Midianites. So God has the, Gideon has this army of about 32,000 warriors. And Gideon's like, okay, great. Like, we're going to go fight these Midianites with these 32,000. And God says, actually, I'm going to make it a much smaller army. And he takes it down to 10,000 men. And he says, actually, I'm going to take it down even smaller. He whittles it down to 300 able-bodied soldiers to go and fight these thousands of Midianites. And if you know the story of Gideon, he's like totally freaked out. He can't believe this is going to happen. Like, how could God possibly do this? But I'm going to trust you, God, and you're going to do this. And, and they go and they defeat uh, the Midianites, and they kick them out of the land. But the whole reason that, that I think Isaiah is linking this here, the whole reason that God did what he did with Gideon and the army, was to show that it was by the power of God that this was going to happen. That it wasn't going to be by their own strength that they were going to defeat the Midianites. It's not going to be by their own strength that this, the hope of this Messiah is going to come that Isaiah is talking about. It's all by God's power. It's by God's design. And it will set the people free from their oppression. So he's just pointing out that when this light breaks into the darkness and, the, and rescues the people of God, it's God himself doing the rescuing. It's nothing that they could bring about. It's God doing the rescuing. And to me, one of the, the greatest verses in here is where he says that the, the, the sandals or the boots that had been used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. He's saying that the, the, the wars will start to cease when this Savior comes. That when this Messiah starts to lead the people of God, that, that war will begin to cease. Now, we, we live in, in a nation... Uh, that, that loves its military. And I'm not chastising that. Please understand that. I understand it's necessary. But we've become so accustomed to war, so accustomed to blood and to battle and, and to the, the loss of life that I think we're a little bit numb to it. But it's a terrible thing. War is a terrible, terrible thing. And he's saying someday it will cease. Like, I don't know about you, I look forward to that day. Well, I don't have to worry about that and, and think about that and see it on the news all the time of, of people dying from one nation or another, fighting one another. He says, it will come to an end. This is a reason to rejoice. This is a reason for hope in the Messiah. So how is this going to be? Like, how in the world is God going to do this? How will he defend them and free them like he had with the Midianites? What is it going to look like for God to show up? And he says, it's by sending a new king among you. By sending one who will be like you and who will be in your midst, but will be a good, good king. In verses 6 and 7, you can, you can look there if you want. I'm going to kind of poke around in these 
a little bit, but there's, there's two things, two major things that I want to, to draw out from these verses. But again, he says, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. In verse seven, the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. His kingdom will be forever. There's two things that I think are are critical for us to see in this. One is that when it says he's born among us, that that we're going to be given a son, that this this is a human king who's born into the human experience. And the second thing is he's also wonderful, which means miraculous. If you translate it, it just means this miraculous thing has happened. He's mighty. He's eternal. He's the eternal father. He's the counselor. He's the prince of peace. It says that his kingdom is going to go on forever. So he is both human and among us and one of us and eternal at the same time. It's this type of hybrid king who is both God and man that Isaiah is pointing forward to. Human in his birth and life and and probably frustrations and pains and temptations, but divine in strength, in abilities, in wisdom. Friends, I think so often we take ordinary humans and with gifts and talents that they have, and we put this hope of divinity on them in their leadership. We want them to be more than human in their capacity. Like, if you remember when, when Barack Obama was, was elected, there was a sense of, like, divinity to him. Like, people just had, like, so much hope that, that he would be the one that would rescue and turn around the country. And I'm not saying anything about him. Please understand. Like, just remember objectively that there was just this hope for him, this hope of divinity. Or... Or when, when George Bush was president, he, he said something, and I think it was a State of the Union or a reaction to something that happened at one point. He says, we're going to rid the world of evil. And I was like, that's a bold claim. Like, that, that's a divine type claim to say, like, we're going to rid the world of evil. Like, it hasn't been done in however many years of human history you want to say. That's a bold claim to say that. But we, people put... People put too many hopes on, on pastors, on church leaders. They want to make them megastars. There's church magazines about pastors. and it, It's sick Like that we want to take a human and make them something bigger than they ought to be. They aren't divine. They are just humans. But Isaiah is saying this leader that would come, this king that would come, would be both human and divine. Fully human and fully divine. And his, his government would continue to increase, continue to expand for all time. It would be a leadership and a government that would go on forever. Now, I don't know if you have been around the world or what you've studied, but most kingdoms that go on for a long, long time don't end up well for the people. Power corrupts. Like if you have studied you know, Africa at all, you know, like the, the, the ruler is Zimbabwe. Uh, Robert Mugabe was president for like 40 years and really just ran his country into the ground as he got richer and richer and people were carted off and it was sick. I mean, this, this kind of power corrupts. Or sometimes a king is really good but doesn't last long enough. And it's inconsistent. This is what we see in Israel's history. There'd be a good king and then he'd be like killed or die early and then a bad king would come up. And so there's this, this leadership vacuum that would form. And so some kings stay too long and they get, become corrupt. Some kings aren't good enough for long enough. And it's just a sad state of inconsistency or even oppression. But what we see in this passage is that the coming hope and king of Israel is that, is that his rule would be wonderful. It would be wise. It would be full of peace. 
It would put an end to war. It would be full of light and justice and righteousness and go on and on and on and continue to expand. Now, I don't know, I don't know how you feel when you read the news or you, you, know, you watch stuff on television or read it on your phone, but I see a need for that kind of king. For that kind of king whose rule continues to expand, one who brings peace, one who is full of righteousness and justice. So I just turned 40 last month, and in my lifetime, uh, I have seen the end of communism in the USSR. Great moment of celebration, now replaced by Vladimir Putin and Russia and what I would call a dictatorship. It's like, there's, it was hope, and then there wasn't. I've seen... The wall torn down in Germany and a promise of freedom. But now in Germany, there's this new hatred towards refugees that have, that have, that have started to arise there. I've seen apartheid in South Africa come to an end. And now in South Africa, I have friends who are worried that they're going to be killed because they're white. And it's like it's just this thing, this cycle of hope that ends up being dashed. I've seen billions of dollars of aid poured into sub-Saharan Africa only to see the likes of one dictator after another to take those funds and use it for his own good while people continue to starve to death, while they lack clean water, while kids die of disease or orphaned by AIDS. I've seen in this country six different U.S. presidents offer hope and stability and change and peace, and yet they have all, I would say, sold out and and become involved, I and mean, think about this, every, pre, every president has promised peace and prosperity and all going to be good. They've all been involved in my lifetime in military coups, in, in wars, as these expand around the world. We've got rich getting richer, poor getting poorer, the prison population skyrocketing, racism is still rampant, women still being abused, kids now being orphaned by the opioid epidemic in this country. Like, do I need to say more that we need a good king? Like a king who will come and bring hope into that world, into that culture. I mean, I I don't think it takes very much to look around and see the need for a good king who brings righteousness and peace. It's time to lift our eyes to a good king and find our hope in God. Rather than continuing to consult the dead on behalf of the living. We need to open our eyes and see the light this Christmas. That the light is found in the true king of justice and peace. And his name is Jesus. In Jesus, a child has been born to us. One like us, among us. A son has been given to humanity. And he was born among the people of Israel and made his home where? In Galilee of the Gentiles, along the Jordan. He is a descendant of King David who go on to be mocked as the king of the Jews. Can you see it? He is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, Jeremiah's prophecies, Ezekiel's prophecies. Like if you have any doubt, just read these things and then read about Jesus' life. He fulfills all of these prophecies. And then in his ministry, we find him doing the things that we've talked about throughout this whole series. The Isaiah 61 things of proclaiming freedom for the captives, of proclaiming sight to the blind, we see him fulfill the covenant of Jeremiah 33 of bringing righteousness to the people. We see the Isaiah 53 fulfillment of, of bringing people freedom from sin, but also physical healing. And we see today that he is the hope of this good king. He lives 
and breathes all of this out while he's on earth. He battles a spiritual battle of oppression to battle the enemy of God. He lives in peace towards others. He was wise in his dealings with people. He sought justice for the marginalized. Jesus is the good king, the fulfillment of all of Isaiah's prophecies. But can we just be honest for a second? Do we really believe that Jesus is king? Do we really believe that, that he is on the throne now? That his government and his peace are increasing and will have no end. Because if we truly believe that, it should be making a massive impact in our personal lives and in the world as we believe that and live it out. But the truth is, I get it. We don't see Jesus, right? Like we can't look around and see him tangibly. I'm in the same boat as you. I understand that feeling. I feel that way every day. Every day I have to remind myself that Jesus is on the throne. I have to tell myself that daily, that he is the almighty, that he is eternal, that he is peaceful, wonderful, wise, guiding me, crushing the oppression around me, battling the enemy, seeking my good, and so on and so on. I have to remind myself that this is his world and that he is on the throne. Uh, My wife, Jess, she uh, does this study with some other women uh, on Monday nights, and Every Monday night, she leaves the house for a couple hours, and I have, like, my WWJD moment. Like, if you remember that, I'm like, but I just think, like, what would Jess do? Like, if Jess was home, what would she be doing? She'd be caring for things. She'd be cleaning things up. And so I try to get the kids, and they know this. I'm like, like, mom's gone for a little while. Like, we're going to honor her. Even though she's not here, this is her house. We're going to take care of it. So we try to clean and put things away and do the things that she either expects of us or wishes would happen uh, while she's gone. And so we try to do these things. Because in my mind, it's her house. I want to take care of it, right? This is the same thing with, with Jesus. We don't see him. But he is on the throne. This is his kingdom, and we get to live that out and operate with that mindset that this is his world. We get to act like that. We get to believe that and live that out. And it takes a community, I think, to help see that. Like I said, to gospel one another and remind each other of that. But I come back to how we always end up like Israel and Judah. Because we can't see the covenant God, we start looking to other things for identity, or other things for protection, other things for fulfillment. We act like it's someone else's kingdom. We act like it's our kingdom, we act like it's our kids' kingdom, our family's kingdom, our employers, our pastors' kingdom, our church's kingdom. But what if we actually lived like Jesus was on the throne? What if we actually lived like it was God's kingdom. This concept is all over the New Testament. I would encourage you just to read how Paul talks about this, read how Jesus talks about it and announces that the kingdom is here among us now. In Ephesians, Paul kind of pokes at this a little bit. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And listen to where Jesus is seated. At the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, 
but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul is saying that Jesus is on the throne now and in the future. It's not just in the age to come. He's on the throne now. And that Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. He has this expanding kingdom that continues to grow until the end of all things when he returns and fully establishes the kingdom on earth. If Jesus is on the throne, then this is his kingdom. Now. We are living in the kingdom of God. Jesus went about enacting the kingdom of God by battling evil while he was on earth, casting out demons, healing the sick, inviting the poor into the shalom of God. That is what the kingdom looks like, and we get to live that out now with him on the throne. And that's both for our hearts and for our minds, but it's also applicable to our daily lives that he's on the throne. We get to put Jesus on the throne of our hearts as well as on the throne in the world. It's not one or the other. We get to believe that he has forgiven our sins and invited us into full life. But we also get to live that out by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, I'm telling you, friends, it changes the world and it starts to expand the kingdom of God like Isaiah prophesied. When we look When we live as people of peace who forgive our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, God's kingdom and peace expands on the earth. When we love our neighbors and are hospitable and generous, God's kingdom expands on the earth. When we love our neighbors, when we, when we change our farming practices, our business practices, when we consider our purchases and how and where products are made, when we remember that God cares for the poor among us and the marginalized, that this is all God's kingdom, not just our country or our kingdom, God's kingdom and his throne advance around the world. When we're quick to forgive our spouse, our kids, our sibling, God's kingdom is advancing. This is what it looks like for him to be on the throne. So, our hope is in the good and righteous king who defeated the enemies of sin and death and gives us new life and gives us the kingdom to live out now, not just someday. This isn't just a kingdom that we get to fly off to someday. It's a kingdom now. So, when you go back to work on Tuesday or whenever it is that you go back, remember that beyond your boss, there is another king. There is another authority who is over the earth and who gave his life for you. You don't need to fear that boss. You can respect and work hard for, but you need to remember that there is an authority beyond that king. When you're inundated by family members at Christmas, could be good, could be bad, I don't know for your family, that that maybe they dishonor you or, or your family life is suffering some kind of discord, you can remember that there is one on the throne who wields peace and forgiveness wherever he goes. That he extended it towards you and you can therefore extend it to the people around you. When you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, you can remember that there is a God on the throne who made you in his image and says, I love you. I love who you are. I am for you. I cherish you. I defend you. You're mine. When you find yourself headed to the fridge for comfort food or to a computer screen or to a phone screen for some kind of of comfort or distraction, you can remember that there is a king who offers his full life for you and will meet every need. 
Friends, this is the hope that we have at Christmas. It's not just a little cute baby in a manger. It is the coming of the king of the world whose kingdom continues to expand more and more and more as we believe that and live it out. We simply have to look to the righteous, justice-bringing, peaceful, ever-expanding kingship of Jesus and believe that he's on the throne. This is who comes at Christmas and the kingdom that he brings. My prayer is that you would believe this this Christmas and actually go and live this out with Jesus on the throne. And if you don't know what that means or what that looks like, would you be here? Would you join a community group? Would you come and ask for for help in understanding and believing that gospel? That Jesus came to be Emmanuel, God on earth, to live his life on our behalf, to die for our sins, to be resurrected and start new creation. And that we get to live with him as king on the throne. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, I think probably it would be helpful if we all could simply confess, (laughs) even right now, that we don't see you, so it makes life a little bit difficult to see you as king. I pray that by your spirit you would give us faith to believe that. I pray that you would help us see your justice, your peace, your ever-expanding rule in the hearts of those around us. I pray that you would give us faith to live it out. I pray that through scripture you would speak to us, by your spirit you would speak to us, that we would gospel one another, that we would come to believe more and more that you are king on the throne, that your kingdom will continue to expand and that we get to be willing participants of that, that we get to live in the kingdom of God now, not just someday, but now we get to live in it and it can expand in our hearts and even physically in our world, by the way we parent, by the way we love, by the way we serve, by the way we work, we can expand and be a part of your expanding kingdom. Jesus, this Christmas, may we know you as the king of the world. And may we see oppression ended. May we see the light of your dawn coming into the darkness of our world. And may we carry that light with us when we go out of this place in the coming weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and sing with us? We're going to sing, we changed things up a little bit, but we're going to sing a song that we sang earlier for the first time. I thought it was very fitting for what we just talked about, so uh, you get a second go at it now. Uh, join us in singing this. I was just thinking about how Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, was given life inside of Mary and was born in a borrowed room laid in a borrowed bed, a manger, which was probably not wood. It was more likely to be stone or something carved out. Went on from there to be a man of peace, a man of righteousness, a man of love, and ends up crucified on a cross, laid in a borrowed tomb on a borrowed stone bed. So we come to the manger at Christmas. We also have in view the cross, and we have in view the tomb, but we also have in view that the same spirit that gave him life inside of Mary is also the same spirit that raised him from the dead, 
from that borrowed tomb and brought him to new life. And so when we come to Christmas in a couple days, may you see that the same spirit that gave him life gives us life when we call on him as Lord. And we get to go and live with him as king. And that makes all the difference in our lives and in the world. My prayer is that you would go and live that this Christmas and believe that. I pray that over you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, church. Merry Christmas.